for us tonight. And what a singing it is. Do you say amen here? Amen. When we sang that last song on Zion's glorious summit stood, I got cold chills. I was standing right there, and I got cold chills. Phil, do you ever get cold chills when we sing? It it hit me, and I thought, I want to stand on that summit. And I want to stand on that summit with these people, with you. I want to be there with you. When Jesus comes back, I want to rise up to meet him with you, my brothers and sisters. What a great congregation Mount Juliet is. What a great group of people you are. And you're doing many great things in the name of Jesus Christ. You do them and you glorify your Father. Whenever I travel around and I'm talking to people about mission work and they say, well, who's your sponsor in church? And I say, Mount Juliet Church of Christ. You know what? You can just see the expression on their face. Something piques their interest there. They've heard that name before. You have a good reputation throughout the brotherhood and throughout this country. People are hearing about the things that you do all over the place. And it is exciting. And I'm excited to be associated with what you're doing here. I mean, just things as simple as as this idea that JP is leading you on this weekend. A free yard sale. And you know... I remember this from last year. I remember the the promotion is high-quality things. We're going to give away the best that we have. How incredible is that? What kind of group of people comes together and says, you know what, I want to give away the best stuff I have and just give it away to the community so that God will be glorified and the name of Jesus and His church will be lifted up. I tell you, I'm excited to be part of something like that. And you know, Jesus said to His disciples that there was another great thing about to happen. He told them in Luke chapter 10 and verse 2 that there was going to be a great harvest. So if you want to, you brought your Bible tonight, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. Open that Bible up there. That's going to be our home base for the evening. That's going to be what we're going to look at. And the first thing that we're going to talk about in this passage is the great harvest. The great harvest. God has a great harvest. And we sometimes wonder, what can I do in the harvest? What can I do for God and His kingdom? I don't know about you, especially uh, when I was a young person. And I was going around thinking, you know, yes, I know God's big, and yes, I know He's God, and yes, I know there's lost people, and there's things to be done, but what... What is it I can do? What do I do for the kingdom of God? What do I do to reap in that harvest that he wants us to reap in? You know, harvest is, a, is an interesting concept. As far as a literal harvest goes, I've only worked in one harvest that I know of. Um, and it was the tobacco harvest of Overton County when I was 13 years old. That was my summer job that year. I wish I had another harvest to share with you. I wish I had a hay hauling experience or a cotton experience. I know tobacco is bad for your health, but that's the only one I've got to share with you tonight. It was the best paying job I could find that summer within bike riding distance of my house. And I found this farmer up the road in Overton County, and he grew tobacco. And I went to him, I heard he was hiring, and I went to him and I said, I need some work. And he offered me a job and said, be out here before the sun comes up tomorrow. 
And I did. I rode my bike over there after a big breakfast that my mom fixed for me. And I went to work in the tobacco harvest. I don't know how many of y'all have ever done this, but the first thing you do in a tobacco harvest that I remember is you took a tobacco knife, which was more like a hatchet. Uh, some, some people kind of use a machete type thing, but I remember mine was a, a hatchet looking thing. And you chop off the bottom, under the bottom leaves, you chop off the tobacco stalk at the ground. And I remember that day how horrible it was to do this. Because not only was it August and over 100 degrees, there's this sap in this tobacco and it gets all over you. And then the truck comes by picking up people and picking up tobacco stalks and he gets this dust all up in the air and it's just as bad as hauling hay, I think. And so you take that tobacco stick and your partner there had a tobacco stake. It was this rectangular stick about that big around and it was about that tall. On top of it, you put a a metal cone. It was called a spike. You just lay it on top of that stick. You take the tobacco stalk and you pull it down over the spike. You put three or four on there and leave it there to dry. The next day, you come in or maybe two days later and you pick up this tobacco and you you put it on on the truck and you haul it to a tobacco barn. I don't know how many of y'all have ever seen a tobacco barn. It's a little bit different. Okay, you know, your normal barn with stalls and and stables in it it has a a kind of a low roof. The tobacco barn will have a roof almost as high as this auditorium ceiling. It seemed seemed that way to me as a 13-year-old. And you know who they send up to the very top of that thing to put the tobacco up there? The youngest, skinniest, smallest guy there. So up to the top of the tobacco barn I went on the hottest day of August that I can remember. And after two days of working in the tobacco harvest, I remember thinking, I wish we had a hundred people working here. You've worked in harvest fields. A lot of you I know have. I can see as, as I'm talking about tobacco that, that you've worked in, in hauling hay. Well, that's hard work and weighs about 50 times more than a stake of tobacco. Some of you who are older, I think, probably remember picking cotton for days' wages. Days' wages. I know my parents. My dad said he remembers doing that. You know, there's other crops that you may have harvested. There's hay. There's there's cotton. There's corn. Corn used to be picked by hand. And some of you may still harvest crops today with equipment. It's incredible the experience that we have in this room of harvesting crops We like harvest, don't we? We like harvest. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, in verse 2, he said, The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. And guess what? When he uses that word harvest, he actually uses a word that literally means summer harvest. And aren't those the best kind? Aren't those the best kind, the summer harvest? It's a wonderful time. Long days of hard work, beautiful sunsets and moonrises. You know, you've heard of the harvest moon. The reason it gets big and orange and yellow like that is because all the dust that's in the air from the harvest going on that year. And we have these harvest moons. And they're beautiful and we like those. And oh, the good food that comes at harvest time. Isn't it wonderful? To sit down, especially if you've been hauling hay all day and you come in at lunchtime. That's the big meal, right? You come in at lunchtime and you eat this wonderful meal right in the middle of the hot day. And then there's the sense of accomplishment you get from working in a harvest. 
You just feel good about something. When you get done and the field's done and everything's in the barn, you just can look out and say, wow, we've really done something here. And it's a time of rest and, and ease and knowing that you have accomplished something great. We like to be part of spiritual harvests as well. Do we not? It's exciting. You know, this week at Al Hollow, we had a gospel meeting. Good old-fashioned gospel meeting. And it was exciting for us. You know, we had a guest speaker come in like you do with the gospel meeting. Keith Parker came down and he preached to us. And we had 25 responses in our little country church. 25 responses this past week at Al Hollow. Guess what that did to us? That made us excited. We felt like we were part of something that was great and we had this sense of accomplishment going on. And everybody's just on fire and, and wanting to go, get up and go and do and be part of whatever it is God is doing. In fact, I've got about 10 of my closest friends from Al Hollow. They're here with me tonight. Where are y'all guys? Right back there. Yeah, okay. And I'm just so glad you're here. Some of them even are the ones that their life was just renewed during this week because of the spiritual harvest we were having at Al Hollow. Now you enjoy harvest as well. What's it like to go to El Salvador and to work hard and, and you have medical campaigns, you have evangelistic campaigns, you're building church buildings and, and after that week of intense hard work and no sleep and sickness, people come to Christ and they get baptized and they're added to the church and they get restored and you get excited. That's why you keep going back year after year. It's wonderful to work in harvest. What about when you have a door knocking campaign right here in your neighborhood? You know, it's exciting when your parents and your friends and your family and your neighbors and the people that you knock on their door, they come to church with you and they start studying the Bible with you. And some of them are so excited about God and Jesus and what they see in the scriptures, they can't wait to become a Christian. They do. Well, I like working in harvest and I know you do too. We love being part of these events, these harvests, because they produce, they produce results. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, in verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. God has a harvest. And it's our job to work in that harvest, isn't it? He says the laborers are few. What does it mean for God to have a harvest? What does that mean that he needs people to work in that harvest? Now, I think it's very interesting when we think about this. You know, I like the King James Version says the harvest is great. It's a great harvest. My Bible says the harvest is plentiful. You know, we would call that a bumper crop. Yeah, if we're talking farm language, we call that a bumper crop. This crop is so big that it's going to get us out of any debt that we're in and provide for us for the next season and maybe the one after that. When Jesus looks out at this world, he sees places on this planet and he says the harvest is plentiful and it's great. And we're convinced, my wife and I and our team and your eldership, we're convinced that when we look at Brazil with 283 million lost people in it, that God has a harvest in that place. 
that God has a harvest there and He needs workers to go there and people to reap in that harvest because He's prepared He's prepared their hearts, He's prepared their minds to love Jesus Christ and to live life for Him. And now He just needs people to go there. And Brazil's not the only place. He looks at Sudan and He, he says, I've got a harvest here. You know what? Jesus said this the same phrase in another place in the Bible. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to mention it real quick. It's Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. But Jesus, in verse 36 of chapter 9, He says He looked out at the crowds and He had compassion on them. And that Greek word for compassion, the literally means the bowels. He felt it in His bowels. When Jesus looks out at this world and sees lost people, it hurts His He feels it in his gut and it hurts his stomach. He gets so emotional and torn up about it there in in Matthew chapter 9 that that he literally aches over it. That's how important these harvests are to him. And he sees harvests like that in Brazil and in Sudan. And guess what? He sees the people in this city, in this community, Mount Juliet, the ones that he knows... He's got prepared to be reaped. He just needs workers to reach them. There is much work to be done in this harvest. The problem tonight is there are not enough workers in the harvest. Jesus is sending out 72 in Luke chapter 10, and He says, the laborers are few. Have you ever had the feeling that there's just not enough help? Maybe you're a mom and you've got a child and that young child just literally is running all over the place now, not obeying a word that you say. And after a long day, 12 hours of battling that child, you look around your house and you think, man, I haven't got anything done. And you, I just wish I had some help. Maybe it's your job. And you're covered up and you're working 50 and 60 and 70 hours a week and you think, oh, I just wish I had some help. You know, we get like that sometimes, don't we? We just get overwhelmed to the point where we say, I can't do all this by myself. And Jesus looks out at this harvest and said, it's not going to be done just by you, 70, that I'm sending out. It's going to be, we need more workers for this harvest to get it all in. The solution is in the same verse. The problem is not enough workers. The solution is here. He says, therefore, read this in your Bibles. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out workers or laborers into his harvest. I put a word up on the screen tonight. I want you to dwell on this word for the rest of the night. Pray. Jesus is about to launch this big old campaign. He's going to go through the towns on his way to Jerusalem, and he is bringing the message that the kingdom of God is here and now, and it's happening. And he sends out these people to prepare the way and say, The kingdom of God's coming. Jesus is about to come into these towns, and he launches this campaign, and the first instructions that he gives, the first one, Pray. Pray for more workers. Pray for more workers. I think it's interesting. The next verse tells us that he's sending them out without extra clothes, without any money, without uh, an extra bag to put stuff in, without extra coat to have on. 
And he doesn't tell them, pray for yourself so that you can get through this campaign. He says, pray for more workers. Do you ever do that with your prayer life? Do you ever pray selfishly? Brother Parker asked us a good question in the meeting this last week. He said, how much of your prayer time do you spend praying for others? And how much do you spend praying for yourself? And I remember when he said that, just thinking, whoa, whoa. My wife and I, we had conversations about it afterwards. You know, this is, this is a big deal. We need to be praying for others. We need to be praying for God and His work. Not just the things that we want and we need. This is the very first instructions that He gives His disciples. He says, pray to the Lord of harvest. This is the solution to the problem. But you know, it's hard for us to accept this solution because we like to fix things ourselves. You know? We just, we're self-sufficient. We rely only on ourselves. We can do it. We look for something that we can do. We're do-focused people, you know? That's an American thing, to be do-focused. What can I do? And many of us don't think that prayer is a do-activity. But prayer can be a do-activity. We went to a church planning seminar in May, and we were listening about these movements that are happening all over the world in Christian mission works where literally thousands of people are wanting to come hear about Jesus Christ. Thousands. And the one single most common factor in every single movement was abundant prayer. Now, I don't know what you thought when you heard that word abundant prayer, but I thought, okay, maybe they prayed three or four times a day for their work, or maybe they got together and prayed two or three times a week, or maybe they had a special prayer meeting on Thursday night or something like that, or maybe they got together before services on Sunday and they prayed together, and that was abundant prayer. No, the average missionary in these works spent six hours a day praying. Six hours. That was the average missionary. Spent six hours a day. One missionary had been working in a hard area of the world and he was having a lot of success. He was an older missionary. And somebody came up to him and he said, how are you having all this success in in this very difficult and unreceptive place on this planet? And you know what he did? Pulled up his pants from the legs down. He pulled them up so you could see his knees. And on both of his knees were big, hardened, white calluses. The man said, I spend most of my time on my knees begging God to save these people. Prayer can be a due activity if we get serious about it. And and it's the most powerful activity that can be done. It's the first one Jesus has mentioned, and it's the most powerful one that can be done. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just wonder if my prayers are being heard. I wonder if they're being answered. But there's something neat about prayer. When we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, you know what, brethren? We actually enter the throne room of God. It goes up to His throne in His room, in His place, and our prayers when we pray smell good to Him. It makes the whole room smell good. 
He loves it when we pray. It's a powerful thing to do to come to Him in the name of Jesus and pray something. James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous man has great power. The prayer of a righteous man has great power. And the next two verses talk about that. Gives an example of Elijah. Elijah prayed that it would not rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then... He prayed again that it would rain, and it rained. I've never controlled the rain with my prayers that I know of, but Elijah did. That's how powerful prayer is. There's another story. I don't know. Some of you may have heard this. Some of you may not have studied it yet in your Bible class, but there's another prayer that I think is incredible in power. Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 and 14. Joshua and the Israelites are conquering the land of Canaan. They've gone in and they've sacked Jericho. You remember they walked, marched around the walls and blew the trumpets and shouted and, and down come the walls, right? Okay. Well, the next city they go to is Ai. And they had some problems there, but they did demolish that city. And then the next city that they were after made a pact of peace. They were too scared to fight Joshua and the Israelites. And the five Amorite kings that were in the highlands got together and said, we've got to do something to stop this really quick. So they got five kings and five armies of five different Amorite nations together and they marched against Joshua. And Joshua heard about it. And they ran all through the night, all through the night to get to where these five armies were camped. And they attacked them and demolished every one of them. And while they were fighting, the the five armies were scattering and trying to run back home. And Joshua, Joshua prayed this prayer. He said, son, listen to this now. Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. Now that's a simple prayer. The neat thing is what happened next. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Maybe you've got boyfriend and girlfriend problems. Marital problems, raising kids problems, problems with your parents. Maybe you've got problems at work. Maybe you're out of work. Maybe you've gone through bankruptcy. Maybe you've got sin in your life. Maybe you're, you're addicted to drugs or pornography. Whatever your problem is, prayer is powerful enough to stop the sun and the rain. Don't you think that prayer can change your life? Don't you think that prayer can send missionaries into the field? Don't you think that prayer can can repair marriages? When we get God involved in things that He wants to be involved in, guess what? Great things are going to happen. And that's what we like to be part of is great things. It is wonderfully powerful. John Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, 
but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. And that's why Jesus made this his first command, his first command to them as they were going out. And he said, whatever you ask in my name, you'll get it. So what about you? What can you do to be part of God's mission? You can pray. We need you to start praying if you're not already. To start praying every day if you can, at least weekly at the minimum, for more workers to work in the harvest. You can pray for current workers in the harvest. You can pray for the harvest itself. And you know what? When you start praying for these things, you better expect something to happen. They're going to. When you start asking God for things, He'll start doing them. You might end up being part of the harvest. You might be, end up being a worker in the harvest. Or you might end up being one who sends people into the harvest. Missions Emphasis Day at Mount Juliet Church of Christ this year, January. I stood before you and we launched an effort called 1002 Prayer. Luke chapter 10 verse 2 says to pray. Pray to the Lord of harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. We stood before you, I stood in this pulpit for two or three minutes without a team to work with in Brazil. Nobody. It was me and my wife. We had to have a team in order to go through training in August of this year. And so we started asking everybody we knew, including this audience, and many of you agreed to do this, at 10.02 every day, pray for two or three seconds for God to raise up workers for the harvest in Brazil. And guess what? In March, another family joined the team. Because people were praying. And you know what? Our training organization came along and said, okay, that's great, but you still need to get another family on your team. And so we kept on praying every day, and a lot of you set your cell phone alarms to go off at 10.02. And I remember there was a 12-year-old man, who, a young man who came into that room back there and said, I'll do that, I'll pray every day for you. And in July, two weeks ago of this year, July, Three weeks before we were supposed to start our training, third family was added to our team. Prayer works. It may work in his time, like David led us in singing. That song means a lot to me after this year. But it does work. Prayer is powerful. And you can access the power of prayer. You want to change your church? You want to have a better church, a better youth group, a better Bible class? Pray for that church, for that youth group, for that Bible class. If you want to have a better family, pray for your family. If you want to have a better spouse, pray for your spouse. Prayer can change the world. It can change your life. And there's something we need to do together tonight. The most important thing that we can do tonight, right now at this time, is pray for your soul. That's the most important thing in this room tonight is your soul, your relationship with God. We've got to make sure that we're okay. We've got to want to go to heaven more than anything else in this world. Prayer can heal you. A prayer of faith will remove your sins when you confess them. God has the power to heal your life, to heal your soul. We need to ask for prayers tonight.
We need to confess sin tonight if that needs to happen. We need to bring our brokenness and our hurt and our pain and our pride and our problems down to the cross of Jesus and lay them there and have somebody pray for us to bring our name to the throne room of God. And we can do that. We can do that tonight. And I want you to, I want you to, if you need to, to make your way. JP's going to be up here receiving you. If you need us to pray, if you need this incredible power in your life, if you need us to pray for you, then please come down as we stand and sing.
certainly come a long way from third floor Paul Gray. But uh, anyway. Absolutely. Uh, there's going to be a reception uh, after church, I suppose, in the fellowship hall. And uh, everyone is invited, Nick has said, so uh, there's probably no better place.